Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So this week's episode is a little different in that the path in which I got to this topic is not one that is prototypical for the show, I would say. Uh, typically, most of the episodes that you hear are all topics that I have had an interest in for a long period of time. Uh, there's various different things that I've been interested in, and you know, the as we're on episode 140 this week. You know, there's that's quite a few. But this is one of the rare ones that kind of came to me a little bit later. Uh, we're talking about cheerleading, the concept, the history, the philosophy, uh, the metaphysics behind cheerleading. And this is not necessarily a topic that I've been particularly fascinated with. I'm not one of those people who was in love with cheerleaders growing up. I didn't hate them. I didn't find them, despise them for being at the top of the social hierarchy. Uh, I didn't really think much of cheerleaders at all, a kind of apathetic, uh, very neutral, um, which, which is a really great place to come in, as a matter of fact, because it allows you to kind of be, uh, you know, not be swayed by previous experiences and to really kind of understand cheerleading um, for for what it is, or at least what it is to one particular person, and that is arguably the country's greatest cheerleading expert, and that is Dr. Natalie Adams. She wrote a book with Pamela Bettis called "Cheerleading: An American Icon." So I'm uh, this book was extraordinarily fascinating. It's not laid out like any other book that I've ever really read. It's a collection of essays, really um, exploring different topics of cheerleading, different aspects. I have no idea there were so many, to be perfectly honest. But this is quite an interesting and nuanced subject matter. I can't wait to get into it. So Dr. Natalie Adams, thank you so much for being on the show today. You know, it's funny because in your book, you go into a lot of the, like the, you know, the, the questions, the philosophical questions behind cheerleading. Uh, and I, I love the idea of taking something like one of the weird things I love is taking something that people consider to be silly and taking it very seriously and not to call cheerleading silly, but, uh, but I'm a pro wrestling fan. And so you and I are kind of simpatico. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did my undergraduate thesis on pro wrestling. I did you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I, um, yeah, when, when, we wrote this book and I was going up for tenure. I had to, you know, do a lot of explaining to, you know, academics about why this was a serious book, right? You know, because yes, cheerleading seems trivial or silly or titillating. I mean, whatever, there are all kinds so of words to describe things. it. But those are like one of those know, things is not like the other with those words. Like, that, that is, <laughs> <laughs> that's a weird that's trifecta, true. but but it's very true, yeah. So um, I, I'm with you. We, I, 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 part of what I like to do in my life is look at things that people just take for granted and dissect them, or take things that are trivialized and and um, dig into them. So yes. I, well, is pro wrestling going to be your next book? And if so, can I write the foreword? Or do you want do you want to write it with me? Should we just write the book maybe together? I could write it with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I well remember going to see Junkyard Dog as a kid. So, no kidding. You know. Is that right? 
JYD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just finished a documentary on Andre the Giant. Uh, it's an HBO documentary. Yeah, did you? Uh, it's so good. Yeah. You should watch it. It's it's really, That's really cool. good. That's cool. Yeah, I will. <laughs> uh, now, you're, so you're a professor at the University of Alabama, um, uh-huh. social cultural studies, right? Mm-hmm. So on the website, it says that you do girls' studies. And, and I'm not being facetious when I ask this, but is that similar to women's studies? Or is that, uh, or is yeah, it girls' no, like no. prepubescent kind of studies? Well, it's, yes, it, it yes, um, both of those. So girls' <laughs> studies is kind of a, a new field. It's not uh-huh. so new anymore, but, but, you know, probably 25 years old. And it really, it grew out of women's studies departments and out of the field of women's studies, but it was in somewhat resistance to this notion that in there were a lot of scholars in women's studies who were just taking, you know, they were, they were just basically saying whatever is we write about for women who are 30 applies to women who are, to girls who are 12. And girl studies was like, no, you know, girls are at a, and by girls, I mean, we're meaning, you know, well, what's the definition of girl? But yes, adolescence and pre-adolescence, um, that they have different issues, right? And there are different things that, that uh, concern them. So yeah, it is, it's, a, it's definitely a spinoff, and, um, but very, very similar. Well, I'm going to take your word for it because, A, I couldn't admit to understanding girls. That would be really weird. But women have always <laughs> been a mystery to men, uh, especially men. Right. So I can't say I'm going to take your word for it, um, given the Ph.D. after your name. You know what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, good. <laughs> we'll say that. Um, so, so given that, given the, 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 you know, the department that you're in, um, what's it like being a female studies professor in Alabama right now? <laughs> how's, the, uh, how's the campus? Well, yeah, well, interestingly, um, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm actually, I have a joint appointment. I am, my main appointment is in what is called New College. And New College is, a, we're an interdisciplinary, create your own major. And so everything I do totally fits in with what I'm doing, what we do over in, um, in New College, because you know, studying gender, studying girls, studying cheerleading. I mean, anything that I've ever approached studying, I like to study it from an interdisciplinary perspective. So I like to look at if, you know, if you've read the book, I like to look at the history of cheerleading. I like to look at pop culture and cheerleading and sex, sexuality and cheerleading and race and cheerleading. And so that it's a really good fit. Um, for what I do, because most of my colleagues do very kind of similar things too. They take a topic and and really delve into it from many many perspectives. Well, I will say that is a great the great answer to a, that is not exactly the question that I was asking, but that is quite an incredible <laughs> answer. Uh, I'm well, talking about yeah. the state of Alabama. <laughs> yeah, the state of you Alabama. You can't duck me. You wow. think I'm not used to people ducking me and uh, you know <laughs> giving me a swerve? I'm used to that. Natalie yeah, Adams, no, PhD. It's, it's, it is uh, it's horrible being a woman <laughs> anywhere in the United States right now right. for so many reasons sure, because of sure. uh, politics and no, and all all I mean in all seriousness. It, I'm sick. I am sick about You're ground zero, um, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, just it's it's a uh, um, it's just a mess right here. And <laughs> I mean everywhere. I mean sure. Alabama's recent. Abortion law is um, just untenable. I just 
but you know. No, it's crazy. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I don't want you to lose tenure or anything. No. But I just think it's, no, uh, no, it's no, funny no, that no, we're talking. You know. I'm talking to a women's studies professor in the University of Alabama. Um, but universities are a little different than than the state. Um, all right, so let's let's get into cheerleading here. What what made you get into? I mean, you were a cheerleader yourself, right? Right. Because mm-hmm. all this kind of comes from a passion. I I'm assuming here. I'm just kind of making leaps here. But like, what got you initially into into cheerleading? Like even as a even as a child. Well, as a as a you know girl growing up in North Louisiana in a rural community, um, it was just you know I graduated from high school in 1980. So in the 1970s, going to a, a small middle school, high junior high, high school, you basically did everything. And so I played sports. I was a cheerleader because that's just what you did. You know, I never gave it any thought whatsoever. It was fun. Um, you know, it was what it was. You know, fun. I never had any aspirations to be a cheerleader at any other level other than high school, and I had no talent, so I could have never been a cheerleader <laughs> at any other level. Sure. And um, it was kind of um, one of those things that I put very much in the back of my life. After um, I was a middle school teacher for nine years, and it was actually the dance team sponsor. Um, but then I went back to get my doctorate, became very, um, well, I guess I was introduced to and became very enamored by feminist theory. So at that point, I com- completely <laughs> would not reveal I was a cheerleader because, you know, how can you be a feminist, right, right. be a cheerleader? Oh, my God. Yeah. You wouldn't get your degree. So, it doesn't matter how much work you put yes, in. Yes. <laughs> uh, huh? So they wouldn't even give you the degree. It doesn't even matter how much work you put in. <laughs> yeah. So I just you know, was completely closeted about my cheerleading past. Um, And uh, as well as I also like to read romance novels, so I had to not tell people that either. Um, You're like the worst feminist uh, of all time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, I was failing feminism horribly. And um, so I was living in Oklahoma Uh and um, teaching at Oklahoma State University, and we actually formed a women's research group and um, very feminist, right? Mm-hmm. And we were going to mm-hmm. do this study of um, a middle school because I had always done research on middle school girls. And we were doing this. It was going to be a team project. There were four of us. And we started um, just hanging out at this middle school, um, which was about 50 miles uh, north of Stillwater, where we lived. And we were really interested in looking at leadership in girls and the development of leadership in, in girls. And um, we would just hang out with girls. <laughs> we spent, you know, two days a week just hanging out and interviewing. And every time we would start talking to girls and we would say, well, who are the, who are the girl leaders at this school? They would name these names. And these girls were all cheerleaders. And so two of us, then the other two had no interest in, in uh, researching cheerleading. And so two of us just were like, well, this is kind of interesting. And um, so kind of fell into studying cheerleading. It also happened at that particular school. There had been um, a lawsuit filed for discrimination on the cheerleading squad. And so the uh, school district had adopted a policy um, to try to have more diversity on their cheerleading squads, and one of it, one of the uh, initiatives, was that they offered a cheer prep class 
I mean, during the school day year, right. I mean, school day, right. you took this <laughs> cheerleading day. preparation class. Oh, I didn't know it was during the was day. Really kind of, oh, wow. It was during the day, yeah. It was like a regular period, you know. And so we started just observing, you know, and that was one of the classes we would just hang out with, and it was really interesting. And um, just, I don't know, kind of, we just kind of fell into it. And um, then... I actually uh, a publisher uh, approached us at a conference and because we were presenting about it cheerleading at a conference and they were like we you need to write this book and um, we did not have plans on writing a book we were going to write you know a couple of articles and so then we realized we needed to know more about the business part of it so I went and spent time in Memphis at the varsity headquarters to learn about the business side mm, of it mm-hmm. and I had some friends that actually worked there so got some really good interviews with Jeff Webb and, jo- and the people that kind of had formed uh, varsity and then we wrote this book and even though the book is like I don't know 13 years old now anytime there is anything to do with cheerleading at all mm-hmm. you know i get calls you get we still call. get calls because <laughs> there's something very fascinating about cheerleading well and the book so, is called cheerleading uh, an american icon that's the book we're talking uh-huh. about here uh yeah and it's i mean it, it i think it's it, it it's a great study i mean you talk about looking at middle school middle school is a very interesting time in everybody's life because it's the it's a real transition period from being you know in all respects from being a kid to being you know a, a pseudo adult uh and, and there's so many different the rules that apply in middle school don't really apply anywhere else and not even you know not even in high school the rules are very different and i think it is an interesting study. there's lots of different things i think you can study in a middle school that kind of give a real insight into human nature in a way you know um and cheerleading is definitely one of them you know because it's funny one of the things that really struck me, and again, I do want to mention that, you know, I, we'll get into the history and the philosophy, but they're kind of intertwined, and I can't, I couldn't really pick out what was more interesting, like the history of cheerleading or the philosophies that, you know, in yeah. the different essays, because the book's <laughs> essentially like, the chapters are really laid out like essays, and they're, um, you know, the philosophy, the stuff you go into is also very fascinating, but one of the things that kind of stuck with me is this idea you know, and we'll get into Lawrence Herkimer, the you know the cheerleader, the prototype for cheerleading. But he had this uh, thing that he taught in his cheerleading camps. Getting a little ahead of ourselves, but that that the cheerleaders were the top of the food chain, the top of the hierarchy in their schools. And you, you know, there, there's kind of an interesting conversation on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, and, and I think that that is actually really true, I think, in most schools, and I don't really know the reason why. But I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing, but I think it's a very interesting thing. Um, what's your kind of take on it, When and, and what did you kind of learn? Yeah, well, I, I think um, research bears that out. I mean, we did a lot of research about cliques um, and peer groups and peer group formation and friendship formation in middle school. And there is usually a hierarchy in in middle schools and high schools as well, too. Um, and, you know, you can – this is a conversation you can have with anybody, right? You're sitting around at a dinner table, and you may all go have gone to schools in different parts of the country. But you start talking about what was the – you know, what was your middle school like? And if you start talking about groups, most people are going to identify a, a hierarchy, uh, you know, of – who was at the top and who was at the bottom. And they may have different names, but 
Um, you know, our research about all of that um, was that at the very top are those people who are those students who, you know, most adhere to kind of normative conventional standards. And it's the jocks and the cheerleaders at the top because the boys are, you know, they're the they're embodying masculinity um, and are what you know, society thinks is, you know, a real man or whatever. And, and the girls as cheerleaders are embodying, um, what does it mean to be, uh, you know, the kind of ideal girl. And so, um, I mean, Glee did this wonderfully, right? I mean, Glee was all about, you know, hierarchies and, and the cheerleaders were, um, you know, at the very top of that hierarchy. Um, and so, um, I think that, pretty much has, you know, has been the case since the feminization of cheerleaders in the 1950s that um, they occupy the, the top of the food chain. Um, and so I think uh, in many ways, uh, Herkimer just, uh, I mean, he took that and he, he ran with it. It was part of, I mean, I went to cheerleader camps with Herkimer, I mean, MCA cheerleader camps, and I very vividly remember that every uh, day you would have about an hour. It was usually right after lunch, and it was also hot. This was Louisiana, but, um, you know, it was hot, and it was a, you could go inside for an hour, and we would have these kind of lectures on different topics, but it was all about your, your responsibility as a cheerleader because you're the one that everybody looks up to, and you're the most popular girl in school. And, you know, this was all part of the, of the um, of kind of this, institutionalization of cheerleading that I think Herkimer did. Um, I mean, he didn't invent the hierarchy. The hierarchy, I think, was already there, but he certainly um, played into it. Um, I mean, we had a cheer. You would literally, mm -hmm. this was the cheer at NCA, the cheerleading camp. It was called, it was um, C-H-E-E-R-L-E-A-D-E-R-S. Oh yes, and we are the best, and we so we were singing <laughs> yeah. it about ourselves, right. and that we are the well, best. Well, it's it's crazy. So, <laughs> so you know, kind of to give myself a teaser for my next episode, I'm talking to um, this professor who basically outlines all the flaws in in the human in the human body, uh, and one of the parts is the flaws of the brain and why <laughs> you know young males are the most destructive demographic. It, it, you know, just from from every standpoint, like they they take all these unnecessary risks. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And the point he was making is that like. Old people drive slowly when you think they would be the ones who would be wanting to get some someplace quickly, and a young person who has their entire life ahead of them drives like there is no tomorrow, which doesn't make any sense, you know, logically. And the reason is, right, is because yeah. we still have these evolutionary, um, you know, kind of templates for what makes, you know, you mentioned what makes a good man socially. Well, you know, socially is one thing, but, but from an evolutionary standpoint, men, you know, males in, in all sorts of, of the animal kingdom uh, want to show that they are extraordinarily strong. So taking these unnecessary risks shows that they can get through that thing, whether it's smoking or driving fast, they can handle these dangerous situations and come out unscathed and also show um, like how fit they are to mate with women, uh, with the females. And so this, you know, th that goes into the jock aspect of what you're saying. Uh, and then the jocks are looking for women who, um, you know, are, don't do take any of those types of risks. Um, and those would be the cheerleaders who stand behind them, who will, you know, can nurture them, but also cheer them on. Uh, so there, there's a strange biological basis to what you're talking about that plays itself out 
in the cheerleading dynamic with with especially with athletes as well which i just found extraordinarily fascinating and 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 we live in this world to get it back to 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 the social aspect which i think is is more your forte it's interesting to me we live in this very strange world now and i don't always want to blame millennials everyone wants to blame the generation before but we live in this world where everyone is equal (laughs) right like no one can be less than anybody else and and you know participation trophies are out there there's no real competition that stuff drives me crazy because there has and always will be a hierarchy, a social hierarchy, no matter where you are. If you're in a job and everyone says, like, well, we're equal, I promise you the guy running the company may be saying that, but he definitely is going to take his opinion <laughs> over yours any day. Um, so right. I don't see a problem with cheerleaders being on top of the social hierarchy. Uh, and I think the fact that people have a problem with that just strikes me as very odd and borderline unnatural, if I may be so bold. Well, I think that it's that because too many people have personal experiences of those people at the top, i.e. the cheerleaders or the jocks, um, you know, exhibiting really bad um, actions and behavior towards others, you know, um, and certainly that is not what Herkimer, you know, he was, he was almost the other way. Like we have this responsibility to be nice and opening, open and welcoming because we are at the top, right? It's our, it's our kind of civic responsibility as the ideal citizen of the high school too, because that's the other thing. I mean, cheerleaders were also seen as ambassadors, for the school. And so it was this idea that the ideal citizen, the ideal ambassador is one that's going to be welcoming to all people. And um, so you would have this, um, one of the rituals at football games was that the cheerleader, if you were, it was at your school, you were the home team, the cheerleaders would go in the third quarter, get the cheerleaders from the other side you know, the other team, mm-hmm. bring them over to the home side and let them do a cheer and then introduce each of them. And everybody in the in the stands were to be very cordial. And, you know, so I would say, you know, hey, when hey, Wildcat fans, this is Susie and she's a sophomore. And everybody, your fans were to say, hi, Susie. Wow. And so it's this ritual of hospitality, which would never occur right on the football field. I mean, the football players are killing each other, right? right? They're not they're Sometimes not welcoming yeah. each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was the cheerleader's responsibility. But yes, going back to the thing about hierarchies, I mean I think the problem always with hierarchies, I mean they exist, right? Mm-hmm. And you can say you know, they're they're evolutionary, they're natural, whatever. But it it also is a lot of times, you know, the the people at the top are uh, you know not not as kind and compassionate towards the people who aren't at the top. And I think, you know, one of the things when you start doing, goodness, when you start asking adults about their middle school and high school life, um, you know, people are still carrying wounds <laughs> from, you know, being excluded. I mean, that was part of the, the fascination for us about cheerleading was as we started writing this book, you know, there would be 75-year-old women who would come up to us and say, I know you can't tell it now because I'm so fat, but I used to be a cheerleader. And that was to signify that, you know, I was somebody back then, you know, or then other people would talk about how they didn't make cheerleading and they had to move to another school because it was so devastating. And it was like, wow, cheerleading is 
in people's psyches too. <laughs> you know, they're still talking about it years later. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's the issue with the whole hierarchy. Um, not that it, you know, it's natural, but it can. I think people have been bad bad experiences with uh, where they were on the hierarchy. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know, like TS. You know what I mean? Like that's how the world works. You know what I mean? Like, like when you look, let's look at a pack of wolves, for example. Uh, and I promise we'll get off hierarchies in a second. But this really bugs me a lot. So I have a, I have a professor I can talk to about this. So when you have a pack of wolves, there's an alpha male. And that dude gets to do whatever he wants. Uh, uh, he gets to – he eats first. He tells the others when to eat. And if you want to be the pack leader, you can. You can't. you got to go after the, the, the big dog first. Uh, the big dog gets to have his, you know, his say with, with the women and they're, you know – into it i'm i'm doing like a drunk history version of biology right now but but that's essentially those are kind of the rules of of the animal kingdom essentially I, I, those exist in human beings as well you know you have the people at the top of the food chain i'm not saying people should be mean to anybody i'm not suggesting that's okay but it happens everywhere and the, the sooner you learn that and the sooner you learn how to navigate those situations politically, I think you will be a better person just like I think a participation trophy is a joke. You need to have the level of defeat to, to know what it's like to actually win, to have a drive to want to win and be better for everyone. I, I, you know, I think those things are extraordinarily important and we lose them when we start pretending hierarchies don't exist and they're not important and everyone's equal and we all have to be friendly. Yeah, well, I think that, that you know, one of the, the key things that you said there is that how, how um, are people learning how to navigate and negotiate um, you know, challenges, thing, you know, things that, you know, the, the, the imperfect world in which we live, and this is a totally different subject, but we are certainly finding more and more of our, um, you know, college students who are just have so many problems because they don't know how to navigate life's challenges. And I don't know, you know, if that's because of you know the type of parenting now or like you um you sound like my dad about the giving everybody a trophy thing or putting I'm so much older than kids, I appear every everything on your that your kids ever done on the yeah, refrigerator yeah. and tell them how great they are um but uh, you know I do think there's there's a lot of you know learning how to navigate and and I have a personal story about that with cheerleading my daughter was we we moved to Alabama she had always played soccer um, cheerleading wasn't that big in Oklahoma. Um, down here in the South, it's huge. And so she started cheering. She started doing competitive cheerleading. She was on her middle school and high school squad. But in high school, she um, started, uh, you know, she really got back into playing soccer. And um, she, her 11th grade year, didn't, didn't she say, I'm not trying out for cheerleading. And I was like so happy that she made this decision because I thought soccer is such a better thing to be doing right now with your life. And, um, and she got a lot of, you know, flack about that. She laughs like she had been on homecoming court when she was a cheerleader, when she wasn't a cheerleader, she never got elected to anything ever again. I mean, you know, so there, but it, but you know, she always, she always will say it was like the best decision I ever made. Um, she said, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to not just hang out with those people. I want to, you know, expand and 
So anyway, um, I think it's, it, it is about learning how to kind of navigate the difficult world of middle and high school because it is preparation for life, um, you know. Absolutely. So. It's, it's, it's life on a microcosm without real responsibility, which kind of lets people, <clears throat> yeah. you know, it lets humans do what humans would normally do in that situation because I think what the outside pressures yeah. can sometimes skew your judgment. But, you know, it's almost like this pure form of social study in a way, uh, middle school is, in yeah. my opinion. Uh, oh, God, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and I like that that story, but it also shows the trade-off, right? Like, she had to give up the world of glitz and glamour, in a way. Like, she had to give up her seat at the top of the table to live amongst the commoners. And, and that seems to be, you know, what she wanted to do, and that's fine. But there's always a social trade-off. And, and I'm not saying whether these things are good and bad. What bothers me is that we pretend they don't exist or that they're inherently bad. And I don't think any of that's true. I just think you have to, you know, when you start teaching kids how to not navigate this stuff, that's ridiculous. And cheerleading is, is a perfect example. Um, but let, let's, I want to get into some of the history here because um, we've now we've talked about philosophy. Uh, but the history of cheerleading is also remarkably fascinating. And I want to um, give a list. So you have kind of an incredible list of celebrity cheerleaders and and given <laughs> given what we know given the the typical um i would say sexual division amongst cheerleaders most people are used to female cheerleaders but there were not not only did cheerleading start as a male dominated um activity hard to call it a sport um in the early days but as male dominated activity i'm going to give some famous male cheerleaders because i thought this was crazy ronald reagan George, I think both uh, George Bush Jr. and Sr. were both cheerleaders. Um, those are, those are pre- presidents, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, Jimmy Stewart, Kirk Douglas, and Samuel L. Jackson were all cheerleaders. Uh, that's crazy. I think Steve Martin. I think Steve Martin was a cheerleader. Too, no, really? I think, yeah. I think so, Oh, that's yeah. a good one. I, I have to double-check about that, but I think Steve Martin was, too, yeah. Uh, and there's three others that are female cheerleaders, which these kind of didn't surprise me, but Katie Couric, Halle Berry, Reba McIntyre, um, and I think uh, there was someone else that was on there that did. Those people seemed like cheerleaders. They just kind of look like cheerleaders to me. Um, well, Meryl Streep was a cheerleader. Oh, that, that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. That is awesome. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I it, it, there are a lot of, you know, the, I think those people got ready for the social hierarchy uh, through cheerleading. But <laughs> but it's funny because, you know, cheerleading started out as this male-dominated activity, which is almost, like, unfathomable now. I mean, it's such a female-dominated um, group, and, and it's – uh, you know, maybe it's just because I'm used to it. I would rather, and not not from like a sexualized standpoint, but I think women just, they're incredible to watch. Their backflips, the gymnastics, they seem to just have, that seems to be more in our society what women tend to do early on. And while I'm a pro wrestling fan, and that's male gymnastics, um, you know, I understand that men can do all these things. I just find the grace and beauty of female cheerleading to be almost second to none. So it's it's very shocking that it started out as a male-dominated activity. Um, but let's talk about that. Wh- who were the first cheerleaders? How did this, you know, begin? Um, yeah, well, the... There's a lot of folklore about cheerleading. I'll do the history of cheerleading too. Okay. So you know, um, separate we, fact from fiction. We for try me. to. Well, it it appears that the first kind of cheerleading 
occurred at the first intercollegiate football game, and that was um, in November of 1869. And so Princeton and Rutgers were playing, um, and supposedly there were a group of you know Princeton students um, who, in the middle of the game, broke into this rocket cheer, um, which it seems like was picked up from the Civil War when a um, group of troops out of New York were walking, were, I mean, were coming through, and they said this kind of, it was a military, you know, drill, and they picked it up, these these Princeton fans in 1869, and it's called the Princeton Locomotive, and they still do it. It's rah, 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 tiger, 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 sis, 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 boom, 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 ah, Princeton, 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 <laughs> and um, so, I mean, they still do that, so. Wow. It, that was in 1869. It was just a group of, of you know, of um, fans, you know, students sitting in the in the stands. Now, the who's given credit for being kind of the first formal cheerleader um, is this uh, guy named Johnny Campbell, um, who was at the University of uh, Minnesota. Yeah in 1898 the interesting thing too since your 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 um podcast is called fascinating nouns Mm -hmm. cheerleader Mm -hmm. has gone through the evolution language wise so it began as two words it was cheer leader two words then it became hyphenated and then of course it's one word now but when johnny campbell was given credit as in 1898 as kind of being the first cheerleader um it was two words. Um, however, there's this one article that is, I think it was in, written in 1956, where in that article they talk about how um, you know the the cheerleaders, and they weren't always called cheerleaders. Sometimes they were called rooter kings, rooter leader, um, Yale leader, Yale marshal, um, and they were you know typically the students. Um, you know, male students who played other sports, like they may play baseball, and so then they would be the cheerleaders or the rooter leaders at a football game. But this 1956 article says that uh, University of Southern California's first cheerleader was actually, and this is a quote, a frock coated faculty professor. Frock coated? Um, so again, <laughs> frock coated <laughs> faculty professor. So uh. There's a lot of lore, you know, Uh Um, but Johnny Campbell in 1898 is usually given credit as being the first kind of formal cheerleader. Um, But really, cheerleading just grew as football did. I mean, football became enormously popular. Um, And I do want to to pop in here because when you say football, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about the first football cheer, football was not the football we know and love today by any stretch of the imagination. Um, no, I think it was not at all. Uh, I think in the book you say it was a flat ball that people couldn't even throw. Uh, right. You know, I mean, that, that's not even. I, I, how did that? I mean, I guess you're not a history of football person, but but like it was such a different game. Like, how did that work? It was yeah, and yeah, and I I actually did a lot of um a lot of research on the history of football, hmm. but honestly, I kind of forgotten it. <laughs> so I don't I don't want to go into talking right. about what the rules Fair are. Enough. I do know that in that first game, Rutgers beat Princeton six to four. And so you think about that, that would that is an in, almost impossible score today, right? Unless you got two, two safeties. Safety. Yeah, I was going to say, like, um, how could that be possible? Yeah. Right. So, but at the time when they were playing in 1869, I do know this the, the first t- team that got to six goals 
was the winner. So when you scored a touchdown, it was one point. And then there was no thing, there was nothing, there was no kicking game, there wasn't extra points, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then the first one to six won. So the game that, you know, that the first cheerleaders supposedly did the Princeton locomotive, they get, the score was six to four, the the final score. I think, um, I think, not to cut you off, I, my brain worked here. I think you can actually have that score if you were to, someone were to score a touchdown, you were to kick a field goal, if that was somehow blocked and ran back, I think that's two points. That's right. Um, Good. Or, no, it would be one point, right? I think I think it's worth it two if you if you were to block the, the, the extra point and run it back because okay. it's, it's after okay. a score, so it wouldn't count. And I think you can also do the same thing if they were to throw a two-point conversion and you were to intercept it and run it all mm-hmm. the way back past the end zone for two points. I think so. Uh, okay. But I'd like to figure out how we could get a six to four score today because that is <laughs> well, extraordinarily odd. Yeah. So, um, but uh, but yeah, it, the 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 history of football is fascinating. I mean, it, it became um, you know it was a very um, oh my gosh, there were so many deaths in the early 1900s to football. Um, they, they weren't like the leather hats. Of Harvard. They weren't even wearing helmets. Like, it's like a leather hat they no. were wearing. Yeah, exactly. And the, um, I remember reading the, the president of um, Harvard, I think it was Harvard, Charles Elliott, um, kind of, I mean, he hated football and he would go on these, this speaking circuit around the United States, um, just talking about how, what a uncivilized game it was and that it was you know not gentlemanly um so yeah that's a that's another great topic for you like, I, should, I know <laughs> I'm, is, I'm like maybe this really will be another 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 episode well i mean he should see football yeah. now if he thinks it was uncivilized no. then. yeah I mean, now I mean, it's crazy absolutely and i mean the um and i think you know like the, the precursor of the ncaa was formed like in 19 1911 something like that by um president roosevelt um as a way to deal with the the kind of deaths and injuries that were occurring um in football but holy cow but getting to cheerleading yeah. it was um i mean so as football grew cheerleading grew right alongside of it i mean it, you know the, the mm-hmm. history of football and the history of cheerleading are just tied right, right. together up to um, modern day and, i mean that's what's crazy about it yeah absolutely yeah absolutely and um, the, you know, the cheer, the, the, at, when we're talking now, the early 1900s, um, there were no female cheerleaders. So it wasn't that it was male dominated. I mean, it was, there right, right, <laughs> it was enough. exclusively right, male, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. so, I mean, you didn't have one, it was just unheard of. <laughs> right. Um, I, you know, and the, the cheers are so funny to me and I don't, I, I you know, I don't know how these kind of cheers came about. Um, but there's a great cheer from where my dad graduated in Louisiana um, that I found in a book mm-hmm. in it was in 1910, and it's this and it's total nonsense. It's boomalaka boomalaka bow wow wow chickalaka chickalaka chow 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 <laughs> boomalaka chickalaka who are we Lafayette Institute don't you see? Um, so I mean they were just utter silliness, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, and I don't know if it was just I, I'm guessing people because there were no cheerleader camps or any cheerleading manuals so people just made these up um and maybe they were regional um i, I don't know it, it is that part is interesting but 
Um, you had in 1910, um, Harvard president, um, his last name was Lowell, he uh, was addressing a group of um, uh, people who were, um, I guess, band um, directors at a, um, I think it was a conference in Boston. And he says in this that um, organized cheering is the worst means of expressing emotion ever invented. <laughs> and he said it's like you're yelling, it's yelling oneself into the hospital or rattling a pitcher. And it kind of makes sense. He was saying this to a group of music people because there's always been this idea of what does cheerleading do to your voice, you know. And um, so the editors of The Nation write this um, kind of very snarky response to him, and they say, the reputation of having been a valiant cheerleader is one of the most valuable things a boy can take away from college. As a title to promotion in professional or public life, it ranks hardly second to that of being a quarterback. So, you know, even in the early 1900s when it was all male, there was still this kind of close, like, here are the jocks, like, here are the athletes, and right underneath them are the cheerleaders. It was just male cheerleaders. You know? Wow. That is actually really fascinating because, I mean, cheerleading is so interesting to me because there was such a switch. Like, the way things were back when it first started and the way things are now, it's, I mean, it's almost like, it's like the ne it's like a negative photograph. I mean, it's literally the complete right. opposite. Yeah, yeah. Because now, I mean, male male cheerleaders are, you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to that. You know, there's, because it is such a yeah. female-dominated um, activity, sport, uh, that, that, you know, it's very, very different now. That I don't know that a male cheerleader would rank underneath a jock. You know, I don't, I don't know, but my, my, my instinct would be that nah, that's yeah. not the case anymore. Yeah, particularly not. Um, I mean, especially not at high schools and colleges. Sure, for sure. But I don't even think. At, I mean, I mean, yeah, no. Nah, I mean, at middle schools or high schools, but I don't even think at colleges, a person would say like a UA cheerleader. Right, Male right. <laughs> yeah. Second to, you know, no, no, whatever. So, yeah. Uh, and um, what's crazy is that there was this strange belief, you know, and in, in I, you know, obviously you being um, studied in the world of feminism, you may have a different take on this. But, you know, it, it seemed to me that there was a genuine concern for women's safety. They thought that they could be harmed by the endeavor or that it, you know, it wasn't ladylike. Um, uh, or that, you know, there seemed to be at least this belief that it was actually an extraordinarily dangerous activity. Uh, I don't know if that's really true or not, but that was kind of the reason that they gave to, for women to be excluded from, uh, from cheerleading until World War II, which of course, and anyone who studies, studies American history, World War II is always a turning point in, in almost anything because everything gets reversed at that point. By the time, you know, the 1920s and 30s, they had introduced trampolines into cheerleading. And so, um, you know, the the male cheerleaders would, you know, jump off these little mini trampolines and do these like flips, you know, through the air. And, of course, all of that would have been seen as horribly unseemly for, you know, young women to be doing that and, and also dangerous. So I think, yeah, you're right. And, and, and the whole voice thing was the other thing. They just... Um, there's one article that talks about female cheerleaders as being frog frog throated lassies. <laughs> um, wow. You know, and they 
and that it was too rowdy. Um, I mean, there's this great article in 1938 of listing all the reasons why girls shouldn't be a cheerleader. And it was like, you know, they become too masculine um, with those loud, rough, raucous voices. They'll pick up the slang and profanity of the male athletes. I mean, so it's obviously fine for the male athletes to use slang and be profane, but, you know, we can't let, you know, girls be cheerleaders because they'll, um, they'll, you know, pick it up. And then I love this is that the publicity showered upon girl cheerleaders will make them develop a conceited personality. (laughs) I guess that wasn't true of boys, but that (laughs) this having all of this attention on you would make you be conceited. And I guess that wasn't seen as being ladylike. I don't know. Well, that's, I I didn't, uh, that's amazing. Cause I got another list here. I want to go into uh, from your book, but I love that because, well, first of all, obviously that will happen to anybody. It's not just, not just women, but if you look at like, let's take, you know, a modern concept like Instagram, for example, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of the influencers on there, especially in like the beauty world tend to be, uh, tend to be women, and th- they are extraordinarily conceited. And the the men who are on there tend to be fitness, and they are extraordinarily conceited. I think <laughs> whenever you thrust someone into the limelight, that is always a possibility. But what I like about that is both of those examples essentially reflect what we talked about earlier <laughs> when it comes to you know what is a man, what is a woman, um, both from a social and biological perspective. Uh, it, it it all these things carry through no matter what you know. Nothing that can be invented doesn't show like what human nature really is in kind of a way, which I think is interesting. Um, so this this thing yeah. this list that you gave um, in the book is kind of interesting. So one of the arguments was that their voices, that women's voices, are too shrill, that girls don't understand the intricacies of sports well enough to lead cheers, <laughs> girls can't control spectators who might get out of hand, and boys want to get back into cheerleading. Now. Well, each one of those statements is unequivocally true. How can you possibly, you know, how can you possibly argue against those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I right? like your pause. How could I like you? your pause. Uh, although I do have to say that it's spectators out of control is, uh, I don't think anyone can handle that. But that is, you know, especially in modern day, that has actually happened quite a few times. Yeah, well, I, you know, and I, I, I think that um, it was, I think the article that you're you're quoting was the one that was written in like the late forties, early fifties, um, after the after men had returned and were trying to, you know, say, Okay, ladies, thank you for serving while we were overseas fighting a war, but now please leave, you know. And um, women didn't want to leave, um, although there were like the University of Tennessee banned um, for a very short period of time. Uh, female cheerleaders um, in the late 40s, um, and there were a couple places. Yeah, they banned them, um, and you know said, okay, thank you know basically, yeah, thank you, thank you for your service, thank you for being a cheerleader and stepping up while our boys were over fighting, but they're back now, so we're going to pass a, you know, a policy at the University of Tennessee that you can't that girls cannot be or young women can't be cheerleaders. Um, it didn't last long, obviously, because at that point it you know, cheerleading had really started the whole kind of feminization of cheerleading really had shifted because it it was now replaced. I mean, it was, you know, it had been male dominated and now are male controlled and now it was female dominated. And, and uh, there also weren't, there weren't a whole lot of athletic opportunities for women. So I think the other thing is when they got into cheerleading, they, you know, it was a way to also, um, 
have, you know, maybe some of the, uh, some of what you get out of being an athlete, I think you got out of being a cheerleader too. Mm-hmm. So. That makes sense. I mean, it, it's it's interesting because when that kind of switch happens, there's really no looking back. Um, and and you know, not to fast forward too far, but but one of the things I want to get to before we finish, which is both philosophical and historical, is this idea you bring up in the book about the sexualized fantasy of a cheerleader. Uh, which which I, I I don't know. I've never really got into that. I don't really understand it personally. Um, but but it's it's clearly a thing because you mentioned you know the the kind of the the example you give is the Dallas cheerleaders who were the first professional cheerleading team, and that's important historically because that was really the first professional opportunity for this endeavor. Correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it. There are there are quotes even from the 1920s. We I think we put one in there of um, a description of a male cheerleader, which was pretty sensual hmm. um, in the way that that it was it was even you know he was being he was being described, but like Magic Mike kind um, of but a thing. Cl- yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, but but clearly by the 1950s, as the kind of the feminization of cheerleading came, um, you know, it, it became feminized. I would say that there had always you know, probably, I think it's always hard to disassociate, you know, sexualization from feminization in a lot of cases. But I think what the Dallas Cowboys cheerleader, um, the Dallas Cowboys general manager, Tex Schramm, what he did was, I mean, he just formalized that. I mean, he, um, you know, prior to to the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, um, there had been the Kilgore, Kilgore Rangerettes would often perform at the Dallas Cowboys um, halftime shows and they were a dance team. And, um, and like my dad remembers, remembers seeing them. They definitely were not dressed, um, you know, anything like cheerleaders now, but for the day and time in the late 1940s, they, they, you know, were showing a little bit more skin than, than some people, you know, than, than normally, right? Because cheerleaders at that time in the 1950s, I mean, they were still wearing long, you know, long pants and a, and a jacket, skirts right? and yeah. Well, long skirts, mm. usually, I mean, it was long and uh, sweaters, long sleeve sweaters. I mean, so they, you know, they're, they're, they're the uniforms themselves look very, very different from now. Um, but yeah, so Tex Schramm just says, you know, football has grown. It's, it's, you know, he recognized that football had become not just a sport. It was a spectacle and he wanted to have something to, um, keep the, you know, keep the fans, um, occupied during the, um, during halftime and, um, you know, hired, uh, a choreographer, um, Texie Waterman, and uh, she, they, they had tryouts for the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. They selected seven, um, and it was a very diverse squad. And it wasn't because Tex Schramm was, you know, on the cutting edge of civil rights or anything in the 1970s. But he, he very much um, believed that there was this fantasy that men, you know, the men sitting in his stands all kind of had this not all, but that men had this fantasy about, you know, hey, I want to have sex with a cheerleader, and but who I want to have that what that cheerleader looks like, 
uh, may be very different. So one man may be fantasizing about a blonde, blue-eyed, white woman, while another man might be fantasizing about having sex with a, you know, a brown skin, dark haired. And so the squad very much reflected that the first, uh, the first squad, but it just, you know, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders just took, you know, I mean, they became the, the sexual icon of cheerleading um, because they were very intentionally dressed in, you know, they had wore halters and hot pants and go-go boots and, I mean, yeah, they were very provocative and very intentionally meant to be that way. Um, and, um, of course, there's an entire porn industry about, you know, the making it with a cheerleader. I mean, I literally, when I was having to write this book, I had to tell, I didn't have to, but I felt compelled to tell my uh, dean that I was doing this research because when you would type in cheerleading as a search, yeah. you know, in a search engine, it would come up with all these pornographic sites. Um, and I was like, I don't want you to think I'm like looking at porn during but, my workday. But work I'm day totally here, looking you know? at porn during uh, the workday. <laughs> yeah, but I am, yes, exactly. We had to watch a lot of yeah. porn, you know. How many hours would you say uh, did you have yeah. to go through? To a ballpark I, yet. That I looked at porn. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, Debbie Does I mean, Dallas, you got to see that all... one. I mean, that's you put that in the book, so you had to have well, seen yeah, that Well, yeah, there's Debbie times. Does Dallas, and then there's, like, Debbie Does Dallas 1, 2, 3, 4. I mean, there's tons, the you know. Franchise. But there's tons. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there are tons of porn movies of that feature cheerleader. I'm going to have to take and your word for it. Of course, I tons... wouldn't know that, but I'm going to have to take your word for that one. Well, there's tons of porn sites I, that— I'm gonna have to, Again, I'm going to have know. to take your word for that. I, I wouldn't know personally, right. but yes. I'm going to take your word for that. Well, there there are, and um, and I, it has created a huge rift between um, the people like Jeff Webb at Varsity, who really kind of control college and high school cheerleading because they totally want to disassociate themselves, and they're very quick to tell you that— that professional cheerleaders are not cheerleaders. That is a misnomer. That is a misnomer. They should be called, you know, dancers or strippers or something. They would say not. <laughs> I don't not think they strip, but I know what he's cheerleaders, saying, yeah. and they get <laughs> right. They get very. They get very upset when wow. when cheerleading is associated with professional cheerleading. It's really quite interesting. Well, yeah. you know, it's funny because none of that bothers me. But what actually does bother me is. I learned that professional cheerleaders make almost nothing. Um, They're they're, they're treated extraordinarily poorly. Uh, It's not fair to compare them to to the athletes. I never think that that's fair because most athletes are overpaid anyway, and they're paid the way entertainers are paid. So um, I don't think that's a fair assessment. However, you could compare a cheerleader with, say, what someone, you know, at a minimum wage job would make. And it's, you know, it's it's pretty similar. It's almost as if there's this belief that it is just the prestige of being a cheerleader that is good enough um, and we don't have to pay you. And And a lot of and a lot of them are extraordinarily controlled. Um, you know, and not just staying away from the athletes, but their lives are extraordinarily controlled. It's a brutal, it's a brutal existence to be a professional cheerleader from, from my understanding. Oh yeah, I absolutely. And I, I have a very good friend whose daughter is a, um, is a cheerleader for the Atlanta, um, Falcons and, you know, she's a, you know, professional has a wonderful career, but, um, just that's, her dream and so there are there are lots of women who are willing to you know try out for these positions um and 
I think it just speaks to the, the, the power of cheerleading. There is something that is associated with you saying you are, you know, um, a Atlanta uh, um, Falcons cheerleader, right? Or you're a Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. I mean, you, I mean, you know, you don't, it's, I guess, uh, you don't, you, you, they they found, they have tapped into the appeal of cheerleading. You don't have to really pay. Now, you know, there's a whole, there there's a whole controversy going on with that. And there's talks of trying to, you know, form unions for the professional cheerleaders. And many professional cheerleaders have been vocal about, um, you know, talking about the brutal, uh, you know, kind of work conditions, but yet, um, you know, still, many, 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 many hundreds of women try out um, every year. So um, I can't, I don't understand it, but I, you know. So, but it is, it just, it was just really struck me at how little they get paid um, because it's, it's actually extraordinarily shocking. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I remember being shocked. So that is what I'm going to say. I was shocked by, by the amount. Um, So we're coming up on the end. We got to the 70s, which is pretty far. There's a lot of advancements in the modern age. Uh, Do you have 10 minutes to stick around? Can we talk about the battle between Herkimer and Webb? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, okay. so let's do a quick little bonus episode. Um, Lauren Turkimer, the father of of cheerleading and his arch rival, former mentor, very similar to um, you know Anakin Skywalker and Yoda in a way. Uh, we're going to get to that in the bonus episode, but but this has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, the book again is called Cheerleader, an American Icon. Doctor Natalie Adams, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, thank you. It was fun. Uh, incredible time um, I want to thank everyone for listening have a good night Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me Daniel J. Glenn the show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt the Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn more about this episode previous episodes and possibly future episodes definitely the guests on the show and of course you can subscribe to the show that's really the key part here uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn links to all that at the bottom of the page and you'll also find links to the show's social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram Pinterest and YouTube and speaking of YouTube, now the shows are on YouTube, so if you don't use a podcast app and you just want to listen to it on YouTube if that's your preferred method of choice now it's an option um, and of course if you like this show, you're going to love the other podcasts that I do Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos and Gear-Based Technologies, F Triple G bt.com i take a rocket scientist a physicist and we look at pop culture technology explain how it could be possible in real life we've looked at such previous technologies as luke cage's skin yes we get into biology the passive device uh, from inception if you want to walk around in people's dreams and even venom symbiotes how can you have uh, a person taking over your body that gives you super strength. Could you share that with? Could you share that mental space with somebody? Is it possible? Uh, we tell you all about it. F triple G B T dot com. And if you like these shows, you're gonna love everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.